So I said, we're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. So uh, as we get there, I want to talk about uh, baseball. And I know talking about baseball in Chicago in October doesn't make any sense because it's just not fun, but it's either baseball or the Bears. And so, so in, uh, in baseball, there's a player who plays for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim named Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani uh, came over from Japan in, I think, 2017 and was very highly recruited. Teams had to pay, put up millions of dollars just for the chance to even talk to him about potentially coming to their team. He was highly scouted, highly uh, regarded, broke many, many baseball records in Japan. And one of the things that is so attractive and, and makes him such a special player is that he can do multiple things. He can play multiple positions, which is not all that uncommon in baseball, but the positions Shohei Otani can play is very uncommon because he can play the field, he can play designated hitter where he just hits home runs all day, or he can pitch. And he does all of those things to a very high level. In 2021, he won the MVP for the American League. This year, he almost and should have won the American League MVP again. Basically, when Shohei Otani plays, the things he does falls into one of two categories. It's either Shohei Otani just did something that no one has ever done since Babe Ruth played, or Shohei Otani has done something that no one in the history of baseball has ever done. He leads the league or is in the top three to five in pitching and hitting and home runs. He can do everything. He can do whatever his team needs him to do. He can play multiple positions. If he needs to go out and play in the field, he can do that. If he needs to just stay back and hit home runs, he can do that. If he needs to go pitch a shutout, he can do that. Sometimes he does it all in the same game. There's a Twitter account called Did Shohei Do Something Cool Today? And it's just yes, and it's gifts of him just doing cool stuff and breaking all kinds of records. Shohei Otani is, is uh, versatile. He can do many things in many different ways, and he does them all exceedingly well. We've seen Paul, as we've walked through the book of Acts, speak to many different groups of people. He's been put into a variety of situations, preaching and teaching to all kinds of different crowds. And today we're going to see again, and he's going to talk yes to the Jews as he starts, as he's in the city of Athens, but then he will reach out and speak to a group of people we haven't really seen him interact with all that much, and that's a little more intellectual, a little more academic group that, he's no, that he is going to speak to that he's not used to speaking to on a regular basis. But regardless of whether or not he's talking to the Jews in the synagogue or the academics in the marketplaces we're going to see over and over again, he will always bring things back to the gospel. And for us, as we close out chapter 17 here, my hope is that we get this glimpse of what it looks like. What does it look like to talk about the gospel, to interact with people who don't know or care about what the Bible has to say, and how do we approach them and have a conversation with them that points them to the truth of Jesus, that points them to the truth of Christianity. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we can jump in to Acts 17. So please bow your heads, and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you and celebrate you. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful weather and this chance to just enjoy your, this city that you have created, this city that you love. God, we pray for the kids up in Grace Place that you are speaking through the leaders, that you would give the leaders a, an extra dose of, of, patient, of patience, of excitement, encouragement, um, that you would 
help them and support them as they seek to teach and reflect to these kids what it means that you made them and know them and love them. God, we pray for us as a church as we study your word that you would help us to focus and dwell on what it is you have for us today. God, we pray as things like the neighborhood block party and trunk or treating and and trick-or-treating in the next week or so happens, uh, we pray for Roscoe Village that um, this neighborhood would come to to know you, that this neighborhood would be filled with uh, your sons and daughters, that people would come to know and, and find that they are searching and longing for something that only you can fulfill. And whether or not they hear it here at CF or at Addison Street Community Church or at New Life or at Holy Trinity, God, you are doing a a work in this neighborhood. You are doing a work in the North Center area, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to continue to be welcoming and inviting and engaging with those around us. God, we pray for uh, our brothers and sisters at Chicago Gospel Fellowship and the Avondale community and Pastor Tim, and as they seek to create something new and unique and different and beautiful as they reach out to uh, their, their Muslim neighbors and build relationships and have conversations and teach ESL, Lord, that you would continue to raise up people to invest in something, to, to connect with that community, to find their place, uh, and to seek out op- avenues to be able to love and support their brothers and sisters uh, tangibly. God, we pray that as we open your word today that you would speak to us, that you would show us and remind us and, and make it clear to us why it is you have us in this passage this morning, because there's a reason for it. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be Acts 17. We're going to start in verse uh, 16, and then we will uh, go back and talk about it. So Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know these new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time, spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's stop there. So Paul is waiting in Athens for them, for Timothy and Silas to join him. When we ended chapter 16, he was in Berea. He had been teaching and preaching. Um, some from Thessalonica came to Berea, took the 50-mile trip to get to Berea because they were mad at Paul, and they chased him out of Berea. He goes to Athens, he leaves Timothy and Silas behind, and now he is waiting for his friends, waiting for his fellow workers for the Lord to come and join him in Athens. Athens at this time was not at the height that it once was, as you, as you see, um, as you think about Athens, you think about Greek culture uh, in, throughout history, and you think about the artists and the philosophers and all of the things that came from that area, and you think about that Greek culture, Athens at this point is not necessarily on the decline, but it is not the major focus that it once was. It is not necessarily at the height that it once was. Though at this point in Paul's day, it is still a center of sorts for artistic thought and the movement of philosophical thought and discussion, and it's still grounded in Athens. And you're still surrounded by the architecture of Athens. It's still an impressive place to be. 
And so while there, Paul's spirit, it says, was provoked within him as he took stock of the city that was full of idols. This word provoked is stirred up. It can be stirred up and caused to anger. We see the same word, the Hebrew version of this same word in the Old Testament over and over again as it talks about how God felt towards the Israelites when they got caught up in idolatry, that he would be provoked within him. And that provoking is not just I'm provoked, but I need to, it's, I'm provoked and I need to do something. I want to respond to this. And so you would see over and over again that God would be provoked within his spirit and then send judges or prophets, whoever it was, to send to Israel to call them back to himself. It was a provoke. It's a feeling within yourself that says, I need to respond. It's very similar to what we see in the Gospels when Jesus was full of compassion on people and then he would act. It's this move, it's this feeling, it's this gut reaction that says, I got to do something here. Paul was provoked within himself as he saw all of the idols. Now, it feels like Paul wanted to wait for Timothy and Silas. He wanted to wait for his team to get there. But as he spent time in Athens and he saw the state of things, he couldn't help himself but begin to minister and preach the gospel. He was stirred up because he saw that this city was full of idols, swamped with idols, overwhelmed by idols. Thousands of gods, even tens of thousands of gods being worshipped in Athens. There were so many, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, that there were so many. There's an altar dedicated to the unknown god, which was just a catch-all for the gods we haven't come up with yet or we haven't thought of yet, so it's the unknown god. We know there's a god involved here, we just don't know who it is or what their name is, so we'll call it the unknown god. Paul doesn't want to wait for backup. He's too burdened by what he has seen, and so he does what he usually does. It says he goes to the synagogue. In verse 17, he reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons there. We saw that word reasoned last week. It's question and answer. It's dialogue. He went back and forth conversing, having a relationship, connecting with people. Paul did this with the Jews, and he did that with the devout persons, the Gentile believers that would be in the synagogues. He went there to find those who would be religious, who he could start with from the scriptures. He knew if he goes into the synagogue, he's got a baseline of conversation. He knows he can go into the Old Testament. We talked about it last week as we looked at him in Berea, that he can go in and talk about the Old Testament and talk through the scriptures, the prophets, the works of the wisdom, and he can point them to Jesus from there. He takes the message of the gospel and he goes into the synagogue connecting with these people who he knows very well because he was one of them. He grew up in that same form and fashion. But then we see him do something else. It says he reasoned in the synagogues and with the religious, and then he reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. He takes the message of the gospel and the reasoning back and forth way of conversing, and he goes to the marketplace to anyone who happened to be there. Paul knew that you can't keep the gospel in the church alone. It has to go beyond the building and into the streets. Jesus himself in the gospel spends the bulk of his ministry not confined to the temples and synagogues, but out amongst the people. Evangelism cannot be reserved only for what happens on a Sunday morning. It can't be left up to pastors and church leaders. It is the responsibility of all Christians as we go, as we live, as we engage with the world God has made. That is where evangelism happens. That's where the message of the gospel goes forward. At this point, today in our culture, it is becoming increasingly less likely for people to show up at a church without some kind of connection to Christianity, some kind of connection to a religious background in some form. People, there is a, a whole group called the nuns. 
which they, when they're doing research, the, this idea of the nuns are people who have no religious affini affinity. They didn't grow up with it. Their parents weren't it. They've been disconnected from church. And those people, it's less and less likely that they're just going to walk into a church. They're not just going to show up and come looking because they have no basis. They have no connection point. Which means if we're going to be the church, if we're going to go and share the gospel, and the mission of Christian fellowship is to be a church that is becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. That's what we're trying to do here on this corner. That means we have to be willing to go among and be among people who don't know the gospel. That's what Christ did, right? He found people who didn't know the gospel. He found people who were the sinners, the outcasts, the people whose society had cut off. So if we want to be like Christ, we need to go and be amongst people who don't know the gospel. And as we do that and we proclaim, as we tell, as we reason with them about Jesus and the gospel, we are seeing the gospel go forward. We are seeing people pointed towards him. And then the Holy Spirit can move as he wishes. But this happens outside of this building, outside of Sunday services, outside of prayer meetings and community groups. Those things are good and helpful and great. And they're encouraging. But they are not in general where we're going to have a chance to share with unbelievers the good news of the gospel. See, Paul takes this message from the synagogue to the marketplace. He's always looking for a way to engage with people and let them know the truth. As Paul is doing that, some people take notice. As he begins to just strike up conversation in the marketplace, some people start to take notice with him, specifically two groups of philosophers. You have the Epicureans. They pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life. They valued, most of all, the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain, disturbing passions and superstitious fears. They didn't want anything to do with that, they didn't deny the existence of gods, but they believed that the gods had nothing to do with man. That maybe there were some gods, but they might have created some stuff, but they leave us alone. And then on the other side, you have the Stoic philosophers. They believed that everything was God, and God was everything. So they believed that all things, good or evil, were from God, and so nothing could, should be resisted. And they believed that there was no particular direction or destiny for mankind. It's just... We're just a spinning blue marble killing time until the end. So you have two ends of the spectrum. You have the hedonism of the Epicureans and the most subdue, subdued, reserved, disconnected way of the Stoics who didn't see any point to what we were doing here. Both sides hear what Paul has to say as he shares about the gospel, as he converses and goes back and forth about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And they call him a babbler. They say, what is this babbler talking about? See, Paul was not the most elegant of communicators. He didn't use terminology or language that the philosophers of Athens would use. This word babbler, literally it's seed picker. Another phrase would be a gutter sparrow. I think that's the best phrase I've read in a long time, gutter sparrow. Someone who would pick up the scraps in the market. It's used as a derogatory term in that way. Basically just picking up randomness. And they thought that's what Paul was doing as he taught. He was just picking at random philosophical straps, scraps and putting them all together to make this new thought, this clear connection. But that was his problem. They didn't see it as having a clear connection. They didn't see it as having any kind of unifying frame to it. Amidst his babbling, they considered Paul a preacher of foreign divinities, multiple divinities, as in they considered that he was preaching multiple gods. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That could be a language thing because the word Jesus, the name Jesus, has a tie. You can get close to it, the, the idea of healing or healer. 
And so this idea of healing and resurrection and coming back from the dead, they heard these things and they thought he's, he's teaching these different gods. What, what exactly is going on here? What exactly is he trying to communicate? And even though, see though, even though the place was different and the people were different, the message for Paul was the same. Whether or not they were putting all the pieces together, Paul was always preaching the same message, Jesus and the resurrection. And so these groups heard Paul and heard what he was saying. And even though some of them brushed him off, others were intrigued. They weren't intrigued by the possibility of forgiveness or grace or redemption or anything like that. They were intrigued because what Paul was saying was shiny and new and it was something different for them to think about. That's what they did. They sat around sharing and listening to new theories, new ideas, new concepts on life, philosophy, and the afterlife. It was just something to talk about. Paul will, tell Tim, will, will write and tell Timothy later on in a letter in 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He's telling Timothy, don't get so caught up in the things that are distracting from the main thing, knowing God deeper and deeper. These people didn't know God. They were too overwhelmed with the countless gods, little g, and desire for something new to debate and discuss. That's also something Paul would write and later on tell Timothy, the young pastor, in 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This crowd just wanted to talk through and discuss and debate. But at the heart of all of that is a pursuit. Whether they knew it or not, they would, whether they would acknowledge it or not, they were seeking something. They were searching for something, for satisfaction, for purpose, for contentment, for identity, in a pursuit of peace that they could never quite find. And so they bounce from one thing to the next. It still happens today. Those instructions to Timothy still matter today. Don't get caught up in the next silly notion that claims to explain everything when in actuality it says nothing. Be careful because people don't want truth and sound teaching, but rather they have itching ears. They want to find for themselves any and every voice that will even slightly endorse their own beliefs and ideas. The idea of absolute truth today in 2022 is nonsense. There can't be any absolute truth. We can't all agree on one specific truth. That's what the world will say. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and they're both fine until your truth interferes with my truth, then yours is wrong. See, we're always searching for something. We're always searching for some connecting point, some peace, some identity. We are made to worship. We are made to connect. But the object of that worship and connection can take the form of any number of spiritual or ideological concepts or even literal objects. We cling to the new and the shiny and the best and the most advanced and the fastest until it is no longer shiny, best, new, or fresh. We long for peace and rest, and completeness so much that we follow any advertisement, politician, TikTok video that claims to offer us what can only truly be satisfied in God. Whether it's philosophers looking for the next concept, or fans looking for their team's next win, or the consumer looking for the next new gadget, there is something within us that wants new, that wants really peace and connection, but we want it on our terms, we want it by our control. Paul has an invitation given to him to share these teachings at the Areopagus. 
And so he goes into what he knows to be a hostile scenario armed with his faith and truth to the gospel. So let's pick it up in verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In every Greek city, the highest point of the city, the highest point of elevation, housed a temple to the patron saint or the patron god of that city. Athena stood inside the Parthenon at the highest point in Athens. And about 50 yards from the Parthenon stood another smaller hill, and it had a temple itself made to the god of war, the god Ares, which is also equates to the Roman god, the god of war, Mars. So the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, as you might have heard it referred to, literally means Hill of Ares, or Hill of Mars. It's just a hill where they would gather, and this was the place where the philosophers and the artists, where they would gather together, and they would wax on and on about the different ideas and concepts and thoughts. He stands being able to see the temple of Athena, the temple of Ares. It's in this place of philosophy and deep thinking and artistic inspiration. Nobody here is looking to join any new religion. No one here thinks they need anything that Paul has to say other than to maybe kill a little time. He's only there because he's been talking about things they hadn't heard in this way before. See, Paul's not simple. He, he knows. He understands the situation. He knows why he is there. He knows they didn't invite him there because they were a captivated audience for the gospel like the Philippian jailer or Cornelius and his family were for Peter where they were just hungry to hear about Jesus. But that's not going to stop Paul from doing what he always does, proclaim the story of the Bible, the story of redemption and grace, the story of the gospel. But how do you tell the story of the Bible to a bunch of people who don't know or care about the Bible? And how do you make it resonate with them? And so this passage here that I read, it took like a minute and a half to read. This is not the, the full and complete speech that Paul makes. Usually when they would have these gatherings, it would be someone would speak for an hour, two hours, something like that. Rather, this is more of an outline of sorts. It kind of hits the high points of what Paul had to say on that day. He starts out with verse, verse 22. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. The religious that they were in Athens was idolatrous. 
ranging from ingenuine to superstitious, from disgusting to the grotesque and sexual. Paul does not chide or attack them. He doesn't take them down or slap them in the head with the scroll of Isaiah. Instead, he meets them where, he are, where, where they are, and he invites them to listen to what he has to say. He says, you are very religious. Literally speaking, you are God-fearers. But instead of using the word theos, which is God and the idea of the creator of all things, he uses the word daimon-fearers, demon, devil, evil spirit-fearers. Literally, he's basically saying, I see that you're very superstitious. I see you're very interested in religion and religious things. It's not a compliment or a condemnation, but more of an observation. Paul focuses on that altar which said to the unknown God, again, meeting them where they are and showing them that he's been paying attention. He's not just some outsider who comes in, but he's learned, he's paid attention, he's built some relationships, he's connected with some people. He has a grasp on what's going on. And in the same way in the synagogues, Paul would start with and ground himself in the scriptures. Here on Mars Hill, he's going to connect with the people by using their experiences in regard to worship of different forms. He says, this unknown God you worship, he's in fact known. In the synagogues, Paul would start with Abraham. Here in the Oropagus, he starts with the creator. This unknown God is the creator of everything. This is a concept that would definitely stick out and catch the ears of the Athenians because in their midst, they had gods for everything. That's why they're swamped by them. They had a god of the sun and a god of the moon and feelings and agriculture and war, all of it. Paul says, I know about your pile of gods, but I'm telling you there is actually one god who has made all of existence. Not only did he create it all, but he rules it all. And these other gods, these other stories and myths and philosophies, it is all secondary and subservient to the one who is Lord and King of heaven and of earth. He is the creator of all existence and thus is separate from the creation. He is greater than the creation because he made the creation and he is uncreated upon himself. His power cannot be contained by a man-made temple, nor his majesty truly and fully represented by human hands. The great pastor John Stott said this. He said, It is absurd, therefore, to suppose that he who sustains life should himself need to be sustained, that he who supplies our need should himself need our supply. Any attempt to tame or domesticate God, to reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent on us for food and shelter, is again a ridiculous reversal of roles. We depend on God. He does not depend on us. God doesn't need us. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. Doesn't mean he isn't interested. Because he is. He loves his creation. He loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. He forgives us. He invites us. He accepts us. He equips us. He calls us. In the midst of all of that, we have to be reminded he doesn't actually need us. He does these things because he cares. See, Paul is trying to readjust his listener's concept of who God is to get away from the mythology or the personal concepts or the preferences of what God could be to actually who he is, who scripture has revealed him to be. And so he gets into verse 26, and this creator God made all of humankind, he says, beginning with one, and from that one, Adam, the rest of humanity flows. 
It is the creator God who prior to the creation of man determined allotted periods and places for man to dwell. What he's saying is that God made the earth, he made all things, and then he made man. The livable places of earth and the times, eras, and seasons in which humans dwell on this earth, it is all orchestrated in advance by God. As Paul says when talking about church services in 1 Corinthians 14, our God is not one of chaos, but of order and peace, structure and intentionality. This world is not just a spinning top doing its own thing. It is not that the gods have created things and just led us to our own devices, but rather God is intimately involved. It was planned and structured. It is evident in all aspects of creation. In regards to the location of the earth in relation to the sun, and if we were just a few degrees in one way or the other, we burn up or we freeze. The amount of gravity that is in our solar system to keep everything moving in the way it happens, the way that gravity is forced by just a few degrees in one way or the other, we're either flying all away or we're grounded into the ground through earth. All of this, the uniqueness of creation and this planet, the chance of all of creation existing in the form that it does is not just luck or coincidence. It is too astronomical of a chance for it to happen without having a creator God to make it and keep it. The creator God intentionally created man and woman, and before that, he created the earth for man to dwell and exist. He has intentionally put different people in different places, both geographically and historically, for his purposes and according to his perfect will and plan. That means you are exactly who you are supposed to be, living exactly where and when you are supposed to be doing it. You are living as the person where and when you are in conjunction with the perfect and exact plan and will of the most sovereign God, creator of all existence, who keeps all things together. You are not an accident. You are not a coincidence. You were intentionally designed, created, and placed in earth on this planet at this time by the God who made of all things. This God made us at this time in this place for a reason, just as he had for all people throughout all of existence. So what's the reason? Well, he says in verse 27 that they should seek that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That they, we, should seek God and feel our way toward him and find him. We exist within this creation, experiencing this creation, that we would seek after God and feel our way toward him and find him. Existing on this earth should be enough motivation to seek after God and go find him, is what Paul says. He says in another way, writing to Christians in Rome, in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul is saying there in Romans 1 is that creation itself reveals enough to the, any person, regardless of background or existence, just being on this earth and experiencing creation should point you to the creator. Creation points us to the creator. It reveals him to us. Paul says we, exi we exist to seek after him and feel our way toward him. This phrase is basically to grope around like a blind person, touching, feeling, experiencing our way toward him. And as we do that, the goal is to find him. See, the Athenians were doing a great job of the groping. They were reaching out for anything and everything they could 
But it wasn't always with the goal of finding God, but rather to find some quality, some experience, some newness. See, the truth is, we don't always want to find God. We want to find the miracles of God. We want to find the blessings of God, the favor of God, but not always God himself. Right? And when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the prodigal son is coming home, and he's coming home hoping to become a servant to his father's house. He wasn't looking for a real relationship with the father. He figured he had squandered that long ago. But what he did want was the quality of life that the servants in his father's house had. Oftentimes, we don't want relationship with God because relationship can be hard. Relationship with God might call us to give things up, things that we like, things that we love, things that we think we have control of, things we don't want to let go of because we feel like we will be incomplete without them. We'll lose control. We'll lose power. But at the same time, we also want God to answer all of our prayers with a yes. And he want, we want him to bless us and watch over us and care for us. As if, and if something does bad, if something bad does happen, we want him to fix it right away. And if he doesn't, then we decide we have the right to blame him and yell and curse him out, even though we don't actually want a relationship with him. We just want the result of a relationship with him. Paul says the goal is to seek and find him, find a relationship with him. And as we go looking for him with genuine earnestness, he will show up. If we knock on the door, he will answer. He actually, as Paul says, isn't that far from us. If there is a distance between us and God, a separation, it is because of us, not him. It is because of our sin and rebellion and pride and ego and self-righteousness and hate and lust and greed and envy and jealousy and idolatrous hearts. Sin creates a chasm between us and God. It has been there since Adam. And it is God himself who makes a way for that chasm to be crossed, for that chasm to be closed. It is through the perfect life, painful death, and powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is faith alone in him alone that we find new life. It is through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that the gap is closed, that the closeness of God is revealed. See, Paul has been walking these pagan Athenians through the story of the Bible without actually using the Bible. He's talked about creation and the fall due to sin. And at this point, Paul illustrates these concepts with two quotations in verses 28 and 29. Both come from Greek poets. Yes, there is Greek poetry recorded in the Bible. And so he quotes in verses 28 and 29. In him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed his offspring. The first quote is attributed to Epimendes, which is, uh, who lived around 600 B.C., and the second one from Aridus, who is from around 310 B.C. Paul quotes these poets not because they were secret God-fearers, but because what was written reflects biblical truth. It teaches us that it is possible to find the biblical truth within the general revelation of God in creation, even in the created works of God's creation. But as we do that, we got to find, we got to do that with caution, right? Because Paul makes these quotes, and clearly they're pulled out of con- you know, they're pulled out of context. He's not trying to equate. He's not trying to explain everything that's in those poems, because both of those poems, if you go and look them up and read them, you can. They're both about Zeus, who's supposed to be the god of all the gods, right? Paul is not trying to equate 
our God with Zeus. But what he is doing is saying, look, this, this idea that we live and move and exist because of God, because of this creator God he's been talking about, and that all of humanity is considered to be the offspring of God when we consider it that we would not exist without him, those are biblical concepts grounded in Scripture. Those are grounded in the Old Testament. And so with that idea in mind, Paul says in verse 29 that if we are the offspring of God, <coughs> excuse me, if we exist because of and by his hand, then it is our responsibility as the children of God to think rightly about our Creator. Meaning we should not consider God in the form of something to be made by human hands. He isn't a piece of material, some lifeless gold, silver, or stone. He is so much more than any piece of art that can possibly be imagined by man. He is so set apart. Again, it brings us back to this idea of groping, right? And trying to, groping like the blind. The Athenians were being swamped with idols. And we ourselves are in our own personal, persistent pursuit of satisfaction and completeness within this vague spirituality or material possessions. We look for something that we can equate to God. See, idolatry is very much alive in this chaotic world. We want to write idolatry off as this, it's an Old Testament thing. It's a thing for other places and other times. It doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen with us. But it does. It does when we try to contain or minimize and subjugate God to act the way we want him to act. To care about the way to care about, care about things the way we care about things, to approve the things that we approve of. We want God to just back us on all of those. We pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to listen to. We mix in a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of culture, a little bit of vague spirituality, and we create this new God stew of which we can season it as we like because we're in control. That's what idolatry is. It's about control. Our belief that we can control the chasm that separates us and God, our, our belief that our control over what is right and wrong, our control over what is accepted and worthy and good and what isn't. We take concepts, things, ourselves, and we give them an elevated importance in our lives, superseding God's place in all of creation and in our lives. Because what starts with us trying to have control ends up with us being controlled by our idols. Idolatry is still for us today. It still happens here today because we are created to worship. The question isn't, are you a worshiper? Whether or not you're religious, you're an atheist, whatever you want to call yourself. The question isn't, are you a worshiper? The question is, what do you worship? Practically speaking, you can look at your life. Look at how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your emotional and mental energy, what consumes and drives you, especially when no one else is paying attention that nobody else knows about. It's in those answers you'll begin to see what is actually most important to you. But I'm pretty sure if you got real bold with yourself and decided to get quiet, it wouldn't take you very long for each of us to know exactly what place in our life our control really means to us, how much it actually means to us or where we have lost control. Paul has spent this time bringing his listeners through this story of the Bible without them knowing what he was doing. He starts and he says, God, the creator, made all things, including man. We are his offspring. 
But we have chosen our way over his way. We have chosen the gifts rather than the giver, the objects rather than the creator. We have chosen ourselves and our own providence over the perfect provision of God. Because of this, a separation has occurred, created by our sinful desires and actions. And then he gets to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul tells his listeners that they have been living in ignorance. And out of God's mercy and grace to all, he overlooked that ignorance. Now he's not saying that God overlooks or ignores sin or avoids sin. But rather, at any point in history, God could have just said, you know what, this is the end, I'm done, rain down his wrath, his just and perfect wrath that we deserve, and just ended all of existence. But he overlooked those times of ignorance. The fact that for so long it was God and the Israelites, that the grace and mercy of being in the family of God was specifically for the Jewish people. And so the Gentiles didn't really have a chance to know God on an intimate level. And even if they did become, if they did convert to Judaism, they were still kept at arm's length. But what Paul is saying now is Christ has come. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and in doing so, opened up a new relationship for any and all people to know God, to be known by God, and to be welcomed into the family of God. So this idea that I didn't get a chance to, or it wasn't for me, or we didn't know any better, we didn't have a chance, that stuff is over. Those days are gone now, and Paul says the command and day that we are in now is one of repentance. He says, repent. Turn from your evil, turn from your wickedness, turn from your self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-satisfying ways, and turn to God. Turn away from your sin and turn in the opposite direction. That's what repent means. Go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And if you are running away from your sin, don't run to another one. Don't run and just try and fill the void with something else, but run to God. Find grace, find hope, find forgiveness there. He says in verse 31, repent because a day is coming, a fixed day, a set day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. He can do that because he is the very embodiment of righteousness, the very beginning of what righteousness is. He will judge the world in righteousness, fairness, holiness, honestness, perfectness, and blamelessness because that's who God is. He will judge them by a man whom he has appointed. Just as sin and rebellion and death entered into this world through one man, through Adam, and we have been dealing with the consequences of that reality since then, so too that problem and those consequences will be dealt with through one man, Jesus. As Paul will write later on in Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin and death entered through Adam. Grace and life come through Jesus. The way we know this is true, the stamp of approval on God's orchestrated plan to redeem and renew and give life through Jesus is because he was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate validation of the acceptance of his sacrifice, the approval of his action to die in our place for our sins, 
to receive the full and complete wrath of God poured out on him, punishment for all of sin throughout all time. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay as a casualty of sin. Another one consumed and condemned by it. He rose from the dead because he is the one who decides what death gets to say. He is the one who decides who is dead and who is alive. The grave, hell, sin, these things could not, cannot, will not defeat nor subdue Jesus. Not then, not now, not ever. Because of this reality, he is the one who will judge on that fixed day and time. He is the one with the power and authority to judge the living and the dead. As it says in Revelation 5, he is the Lamb of God who is able to take away the sins of the world. He is the one who is worthy of all praise and able to open the scroll and reign out the kingdom of God. Paul has walked this crowd from creation through sin and the fall, through redemption and final judgment. It's a universal message he gives to all people because that judgment will be universal regardless of whether or not you want to acknowledge it or admit it. You will stand before this creator at one day, laying out for them, using their own altars, their own poets, their own logic, the reality and necessity of the gospel and their need to repent and turn to Jesus. And so how does it end? How do they respond in verse 32? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now when they heard the resurrection, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among those who were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Three groups of people respond in this. You have group one, some mocked. It was a joke. See, the prevailing Greek belief was that humans had a spirit that was good and a body that was bad. And so if there was some kind of eternity, some kind of afterlife, while they might not all agree or know about what that would look like, pretty much all Greeks believed that it was going to have nothing to do with a physical body. A glorified risen Savior, a glorified risen physical body didn't make sense to them. They wrote Paul and his teachings and message off, scoffing and mocking. This teaching is nonsense. It doesn't matter to me. It has no bearing on me. <laughs> Excuse me. And then you have group two. Others said, we will hear you, about, hear you again about this. You almost had us. Maybe some other time we can talk about this. I'm intrigued, but I'm not convinced. It seems interesting, but it's not urgent. I'll, I'll figure it out later. Let me think about that for a little while. Let me get back to you about it. And then you have group three. Some joined and believed. They heard the gospel preached, the call for repentance, and the Holy Spirit opened their hearts to the truth, and they accepted and became believers. They admitted their need for a Savior. They believed that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross for their sins in their place, and they chose for him to be Savior and King of their lives. This group did not show up. This group that was listening to him did not show up on Mars Hill expecting to have their entire lives turned upside down. They didn't show up expecting to actually finally find that satisfaction that their hearts and souls had been longing for. But some did. And so I ask you, what group do you find yourself in this morning? Is this just another silly myth that has no bearing on the people living in Chicago in 2022? Is this all just a waste of time? Or maybe you're in group two. Maybe you're intrigued and you got questions. You aren't quite ready to make a decision and see your life change. You aren't quite sure. You haven't totally been convinced yet. 
or maybe group three. Maybe you know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins in your place and you choose to follow him and be transformed by him. I pray that you would find your way to group three, to believe and trust and know and rest in the reality of God's love for you. If you take all of chapter 17 and even just the passage we looked at this morning, you get a really great sense of Paul's versatility as an evangelist. In the synagogues, he could walk through the scriptures, pointing out and connecting the places to which uh, they connected to Jesus that so many had missed. They could look at the prophecies. They could look at the, the Psalms written and point them to Jesus. In the marketplace and on Mars Hill, he's able to speak and be heard, to connect and converse and communicate in a way in which those outside of the religious backgrounds can understand and follow him. Regardless of the location, regardless of the audience, there is a twofold reality in which I think all believers should hold to if we want to see the gospel go forward. If we want to be people who are able to share the gospel with those outside of Christianity, those who have no religious background or who are a religious background counter to ours, there's a twofold thing that I think Paul reveals to us in this passage. One is right there in verse 16 is that Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw the state of Athens. It's that same motivation that he had for the Jews. He sees the eternal suffering that awaits these people. He is brokenhearted for those who don't know Christ, and he knows he has the truth that can give them eternal life. We need to see people the way that Paul saw people, the way that Christ sees them, as created in the image and likeness of God with value and worth who are in need of good news of great joy, which is what the gospel is for us. The second thing we should take away from Paul is that regardless where he was or who he was talking to, Paul was always going to bring them back to Jesus and him crucified. It is the reality of the sacrifice of Christ, the life and grace found there, which is always at the center of his message. He does not minimize it. He does not sugarcoat it. He does not eliminate it. He is always going to take people to Jesus and the cross. May we as believers be burdened for those who don't know Christ. And be willing and ready always to point people to the Son of God who loves us, who died for us, who rose from the dead and is returning to make all things new. Brothers and sisters, you know truth. You know good news of great joy. Share it with people. Let them know what you know. Let them know and see and understand what you know and have seen and understood that God made you and knows you and loves you so much he sent his Son to die for you. Because there is hope there and life there and joy there. And there's a world outside that is desperate for those things. And we know where to find it. But we have to be willing to go and put ourselves in those places, in those situations, in those conversations, and speak the truth of the gospel, speak the truth of Jesus and him resurrected. I pray that you would be provoked in your spirit, that you would be burdened for our world that the gospel might go forward. Because yes, God doesn't need us, but he calls us and he uses us to be part of what he is doing to redeem and renew all things throughout all time back to himself. He has you where he has you. And he has made you who he has made you to be so that you might connect, so that you might be the light of the world that is point people to Christ. Do not shrink from that responsibility, but embrace it and know that you do it with the Holy Spirit's embodiment, with the Holy Spirit leading you, guiding you, and using you that all you need to do is step into those moments, be willing to step in and share what you know, and the Holy Spirit will do the work. I pray that this morning, I pray that as we go into the world, that we would be provoked 
and we would be able to share what we know, the truth that God is good, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today, for this chance for us to celebrate and enjoy you and worship you, to hear from you and be challenged by you this morning. God, give us a heart that is brokenhearted for those who don't know you. Give us a heart like Paul's that sees a broken and dark world and longs to see it rebuilt for you, by you, by your gospel. God, so often we feel like we don't have the words to say, we don't know, we don't know have the answers to the questions. Lord, we make excuses as to why we can't be those lights. Remind us that you are with us. Remind us that you equip and call us. That though you don't need us, you use us. And you will use us for your glory. God, give us a boldness to step into those moments, those places, those opportunities, and share the good news that we know. And as we look for those opportunities, not just waiting for them to show up, but we look for them. God, help us to enjoy the gospel. Help us to be reminded of the good news and to remind it of how desperate we are for the gospel and the day-by-day grace that we receive, the day-by-day forgiveness that we receive. Let us hunger and thirst to know you deeper. Let us hunger and thirst to know the gospel more. That we're so filled with it, we're so excited about it, we're so captivated by it that we have to tell others. We can't help but share what we know, share what we have experienced because it's too good, it's too awesome, it's too wonderful. God, give us a heart broken heart for those around the world and give us a hunger and thirst for them to know that you are good, that you are for them, and that you have given them a way for them to have a right relationship with you. And as we do that, don't let us forget that you've made that same way for us and let us to embrace and rejoice in that. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.